conclude this uh, terrific afternoon of discussion with uh, a panel on the legal challenges to the Health Care Reform Act, and we're uh, very privileged today to be joined by uh, two quite distinguished speakers who can present both sides. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Roger Pallon, who, as you all know, is the Vice President for Legal Affairs here at Cato. He's the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, and that's really become uh, quite an important for force in the national debate over the direction of the law and the Constitution and the court uh, and the development of judicial philosophy. And he's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which puts out, um, which is really an invaluable guide looking at uh, the cases that the court decides each term and uh, kind of predictions on uh, the future of the, the, the court. He's also an adjunct professor of government at Georgetown University. And before joining Cato, Roger held five five senior posts. I thought, uh, I thought I just want to make sure that was right. Five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, and was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Um, and in 1989, I like this, Roger, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with the Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the U.S. Constitution. Now, Roger, of course, will not be sitting here writing uh, this afternoon, but I'm sure that uh, your, your debating skills will also uh, perhaps be worthy of a medal. Um, and then on the other side, to debate uh, what is obviously uh, quite, uh, has become uh, quite a contentious law and controversial issue <coughs> in your attendant, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the Center for American Progress. And Nira uh, has over a decade of experience in the executive and legislative branch, as well as in campaigns um, at, at uh, every level, including the presidential level, uh, local government, and think tanks. Now, as uh, the COO for the Center for American Progress, she leads strategic planning for the organization, manages operations, and oversees the health care program. Most recently, she served as senior advisor for health reform at the Department of Health and Human Services, obviously advising Secretary Sebelius, and she worked on the president's health reform team to pass this bill. Uh, in that role, she developed policies around reform and worked on the Hill and with outside groups in support of it. And then, as I said before that, uh, uh, she's worked at, on other levels in campaigns. She worked on the, uh, of course, the Obama-Biden presidential campaign, managing domestic policy proposals. Uh, she worked on uh, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. She was a deputy campaign manager when uh, it was then uh, uh, Senator Clinton running for the Senate in New York. So uh, we're very privileged today uh, to have uh, both Roger and Nira to take both sides of this issue and talk about uh, really what are, are quite titanic struggles in the courts over the future of this law. Um, I should say um, I'm Jan Crawford. I'm the chief legal correspondent for CBS News. And um, I've covered the court since 1994. And there are, there are issues uh, that very uh, infrequently uh, uh, kind of uh, develop and form, I think, in the way that this case is. Um, it's almost like we know now that we have this kind of gathering, <coughs> it is a gathering storm uh, off the shore, and it is slowly moving uh, toward one place. And that, of course, is, you know, one first street, the United States Supreme Court. Um, uh, as uh, uh, Mr. Rivkin said in his comments earlier in the panel, there are several challenges underway right now across the country, uh, all of which will probably get to the Supreme Court at about the same time. 
We've got legal challenges now uh, that will be heard by the Cincinnati-based Federal Appeals Court, the Sixth Circuit, in June. There will be arguments that will be held, heard by the Richmond-based Federal Appeals Court, the Fourth Circuit, on May 10th. And now there is now an effort underway to have the um, Atlanta-based Federal Appeals Court here um, on a very expedited basis by the full court uh, challenges to that kind of gargantuan case. That's the one uh, that really is the big one, where 26 states have joined forces to, to challenge this litigation coming out of Florida. Uh, there's an effort to have those arguments heard uh, the first week of June with an eye. And uh, I think this is clear to all of you, because you're obviously pretty sophisticated followers of, of this issue, with an eye to getting this to the Supreme Court in his 2011 term. Now, um, uh, Mr. Rivkin predicted that that means the court could probably be hearing arguments uh, May of 2012 with a decision by the end of June in 2012. And of course, uh, always every year, most of the court's controversial decisions, they take the longest to decide, come at the very end of June. And why is that significant? Uh, the timing of that, I think. Uh, I think uh, what will be happening in the middle of 2012 uh, we will be smack dab in the middle of a presidential campaign, injecting, I think, the court uh, in, in a, a, a quite uh, significant way into this contentious, controversial political issue. So you're going to have a collision <coughs> of law and politics playing out uh, as the presidential campaign unfolds, and I think it's really impossible to overstate uh, the magnitude of what that clash could be like. Obviously, we've seen it in the political arena, and we now are seeing it unfold in the legal arena, uh, heading now squarely to the Supreme Court, which, as you all know, is closely divided five to four, uh, generally uh, with a slightly now conservative tilt. Uh, but I think all bets are off on what they may do with this case. But let's see what our um, uh, panelists uh, have to say and predict. First of all, I think, uh, the, why don't we get started, since we did hear quite an extensive discussion of the issues and, and, and quite a scathing critique of the law by the attorney who is challenging it, David Rivkin. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Nira, and, and kind of get the, the, the response to that. Um, Mr. Rivkin, and let me just give you yeah, a sure. couple of things that he said, for those of you also who weren't able to hear his comments. Um, you know, uh, he doesn't really pull too many punches here. He said, uh, the law eviscerates core constitutional principles of dual sovereignty, that there's no limiting principle that, uh, and Nira, I know you've heard this before, but if Congress can do this, they can tell you you've got to go buy broccoli and uh, a gym membership. Uh, he said that, um, that this basically uh, is a jarring redefinition of the constitutional constitutional vision of U.S. citizenship. It rips out whole clauses of the United States Constitution. So I think what he was really trying to say is um, he thinks that this law uh, is unconstitutional. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, um, obviously, these comp uh, issues are complex. Uh, Tenth Amendment, uh, congressional power. Uh, let's focus on those big ones. There are other issues, I think, obviously, mm -hmm. that are still in play. But most of uh, the focus and where I think the rubber really meets the road is whether or not Congress exceeded its authority when it passed this legislation, and specifically uh, the individual mandate. Um, Great. Take it away. So, uh, you want to stand? Should we switch uh, places? Or, uh, is it all right if we? You're going to stand here, Roger. Okay. So let's keep these. You, if you want to, you want to. I'll just sit. These. That's. 
I prefer to stay from You prefer room. to stand. Okay. Well, he well, can I'll stand and you okay. can okay. stand and okay. Um, so let me, just, let me just take a, a, I think the issue of a gathering storm is really uh, a, a, a great way to put it because it was actually quite silent for a very long time. Having worked on the legislation um, from the beginning of uh, the deliberations in Congress through to the end, um, what was fascinating about the debate about the minimum coverage provision, the individual mandate, is that it really, in a debate that went on for a very long time, or felt like it went on for a very long time, the debate around the individual mandate did not, um, did not become really engaged until really towards the end of the process. And one uh, example of that is that um, we had a legislation, Senate Finance Committee worked on legislation in a bipartisan basis uh, in the beginning of the process. It, it, it fell apart um, midway through the process. But in a white paper that was put forward by Senator Grassley and signed on by all the Republican members of the committee, uh, the individual mandate was presumed as part of the legislation. And if you look at Senate Finance Committee markup of the legislation as late as September of in, <coughs> until 2000, September of 2009, there wasn't actually uh, there was no there was no single amendment offered to eliminate the individual mandate or any uh, discussion of it to that extent that late in the process. Obviously, later it became more of an issue, and as has been discussed. Uh, what's fascinating about the debate that we're in right now about the individual mandate is that the mandate itself had, had been, until uh, the discussions of the last two years, had been considered a conservative idea. Um, obviously, Senator Governor Romney uh, used an individual mandate in Massachusetts. Stuart Butler championed an individual mandate as part of um, his deliberations and his offerings on health care reform. I remember him offering it in a debate with me on uh, Obama versus McCain's health care plan in September of 2008. Um, and obviously, uh, Senator Dole, Senator Chafee offered the individual mandate as a proposal as part of universal health care plans they put forward in um, 1993, 1994, 1995. And so um, the debate around this issue has been gathering. Um, it is obviously... Uh, a discussion point. Um, we we in the during uh, the uh, the process, um, Department of Justice did actually look at the individual mandate and analyze its constitutionality uh, in before it was actually voted upon in the Senate. Um, and it was. Wait, can I interrupt you on that? Because so you said DOJ did look yes. at this because um, our earlier speaker had said that that had not happened. Yes, that's that no wrong. one in DOJ or in the White House Counsel's Office had really reviewed this law. Uh, that that's that's wrong. So people should go actually ask uh, ask them about that because uh, I mean I I was I received information about uh, uh, I think it was it was definitely White House Counsel's input on um, the constitutionality of it, and I I presume I mean there was a firewall between us and DOJ in sense like we didn't deliver HHS and didn't directly ask DOJ, but there was a direct conversation there. And so um, so uh, there was obviously an analysis of this. And I think there, that, that analysis took place actually in the fall, uh, late fall of 2009. So the legislation had been going through the process, um, but it was definitely before 
the bill was finally voted upon. And so um, I think it's interesting to make it to to make the points about a gathering storm because I just wanted to provide this sort of history of of the issue around the mandate itself. And I'd say I really approached this issue from the perspective of policy, and I'm happy to defend its constitutionality. But just to go through why we had an individual mandate in the legislation, um, we should step back and recognize that their healthcare is an area in which we have a long history of a fe strong federal role. So there's two important pieces of legislation which directly regulate uh, the health insurance and health insurance markets and healthcare overall. First of all, there is, um, there is ERISA, which basically regulates large group insurance markets and provides um, requirements around insurance protections, pre-existing conditions for large group insurers. That, that, that regulation of large uh, group, large employer plans, plans that IBM and Apple, et cetera, offer has been on the books for about 40 years. There's also something called EMTALA, which essentially grants a right to care, to emergency room care for every American. It is a unique actual footprint in in, in, in the marketplace. It is an area in which the government, the federal government, has said that if you are extremely sick, if, you're, um, if your life is in danger, emergency rooms have to care for you. That actually differentiates healthcare from other arenas because we do not, for example, have a law that says if you're in dire need of a marketplace good like uh, you know, airplane travel. You have a right to airplane travel. We do say, the federal government has said um, that in this specific area, we consider this somewhat different from other marketplace goods because it directly affects your existence. And as a citizen, we are establishing that private actors, uh, not just public actors, private actors, so any private hospital, private doctor, emergency rooms, have to take care of you in that situation, and I think that is uh, that is interesting, and in part one of the one of the real drivers of the system of the healthcare system, because we that's what creates a system by which, in part, um, healthcare costs do shift. Now, there's a debate whether they shift mostly to public sector in which we pay for it through taxes or through the private sector in which you pay for it in, in terms of higher premiums. But we do have $58 billion of uncompensated care in our country in the sense of people uh, people have go to the emergency room, get treatment, they don't have insurance to pay for it. And that was one of the reasons and one of the, one of the reasons why we had uh, an individual mandate, which again, until late in the process, was was an area that had bipartisan support. Another reason why we had an individual mandate in the in the legislation is that we wanted to, in essence, have regulations of insurance, and there's bipartisan support for issues around pre-existing conditions and ensuring that we end discrimination based on pre-existing conditions. It's one of the, obviously, most popular elements of the legislation, one of the reasons, one of the areas where there has been um, some bipartisan support. But experts from across the range uh, believe that you cannot actually have a system of, of eliminating a discrimination based on pre-existing conditions without uh, an individual mandate, because essentially, 
unless you have a system, unless um, insurers have a large enough pool um, of of people to be in the in the in the healthcare system, what happens is only the sicker people come in and um, and basically destroy the pool, raise prices for everyone, and destroy the pool. And so um, there is there had been support for an individual mandate because of the importance to having pre-existing conditions requirements. And pre and and many Americans have felt that it is wrong. Um, that we have pre-existing conditions, that, that there is not a system of real protection in all insurance <coughs> markets for pre-existing conditions. And so the individual mandate was, was part of the reasons why it was put in was to do that. And I think that is one of the reasons why, um, you know, the, the, our, the act itself is constitutional. People feel that uh, their argument is uh, that it is the federal government has a role in creating protections, insurance protections for the uh, for in the insurance market, a market it currently regulates extensively, to expand on those regulations and to further those regulations and provide real protections for consumers in every corner of the country against pre-existing conditions. They need there was a need for an individual mandate, which uh, effectuated that insurance system, and that is one of the reasons why it is an act, it is, a, it is con properly constitutional, looking at the necessary proper clause as a foundation for the constitutionality of the Commerce Clause constitutionality of the, of the law itself. And so I'm happy to take on more of uh, the individual arguments, but I thought I'd let my colleague Roger respond and uh, take more on as we go. Well, it sounds like... Um you know, obviously, one of the criticisms of the law, <coughs> and specifically uh, the individual mandate provision, is that there's this no limiting principle. And you're suggesting that, well, yes, there really is, because the unique role that the government plays and has always played in health care, and everyone eventually will need health care, it's unique and different. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, the, the thing is, you know, once the federal government decided to come in and say that when you are sick, you have a right to health care, they basically um, created a system where uh, once people go to the emergency room and use health care, other, other people who have health insurance uh, pay for that. Now, currently, both people in the private sector pay for that, as well as people pay, pay for that through their taxpayer dollars when um, their uh, hospitals are, are reimbursed from the federal government. But the, that system of cost shifting. Right now, if you know, uh, right now, if you choose not to get, uh, you you make purchases in other markets. It doesn't really affect me ultimately. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't directly affect me. I don't end up paying for your health care, but once or for your purchase, your purchasing decisions. But the, what differentiates health care um, from other arenas is the fact that the federal government has chosen to regulate it in such a model and that in, in these instances we require, we have established a right of healthcare actually, um, and that does create a, a, a different kind of role that differentiates it from other, <coughs> from other arenas. And obviously um, why all of this is significant is because of course uh, the Constitution sets up this unique structure of government where mm -hmm. Congress has only limited powers and the rest are reserved for the states. One of those powers that Congress has is the power to regulate commerce. 
Um, so this issue, obviously, that we're talking about now, uh, really the crux of it is does Congress, and in this case, does Congress, if it has the power to regulate co commerce and economic activity, which it clearly does and the court has said it does, does it have the power to regulate economic inactivity? Someone's decision not to buy health insurance, someone's decision to stay out of the marketplace. The challengers of, of this law, in, in particularly in Florida, we heard from the lawyer today, but all the other cases make the argument that no, Congress can't regulate that passive economic inactivity. The Supreme Court, and this is true, the Supreme Court has never ruled on a case exactly like this. And that's why you hear people saying, if um, opponents of this law saying, if Congress can make us buy health insurance, they can make us buy broccoli. Um, and, and what Nira is saying and, and what the government argues is that uh, this is different. Uh, this is not really uh, a decision uh, that people are making not to participate in the economy, to sit this out, to not spend money on health insurance, because at the end of the day, that's really not a real decision. Everyone is going to need health insurance. So sure, while you may not ever need to eat broccoli, uh, you're at some point in your life going to need health insurance. And so that's how they're trying to distinguish uh, this case and, and say that that's unique. And that's significant. I mean, that could well be uh, what the future of health care reform turns on. Um, so with that little primer, uh, Roger, uh, if you want to talk about it, I mean, obviously the individual mandate is is really uh, uh, what what the, the heart of this case is. But I'm also curious about your thoughts on whether or not, and you're touched on this, uh, whether or not uh, we, how you would feel if if the court just said, um, let's just cut that out. We'll leave. We'll sever the individual mandate, and we'll preserve uh, the rest of this litigation in in the panel before us. Um, uh, Mr. Pollack suggested that, that he would be okay with that, and maybe you can respond to that too at some point. The judges have split on that in the lower courts on severability. So, Roger, thank you. Well, if that's the way the court uh, were to decide, it would be all right with me because without the individual mandate, the rest would collapse, and that's just fine by me. Um, <clears throat> now, the re one of the uh, reasons I wanted to speak from the podium is because uh, I'm uh, perhaps appropriately for uh, a conference on health care just coming off a week of bronchitis. So I hope that uh, I don't cough too much during the course of my remarks and that uh, my voice holds up to the conclusion of my remarks. Uh, in any event, um, the legal battle over Obamacare is uh, not really at bottom about health care or even uh, health insurance. It's about freedom about the right that each of us has to plan and live his own life free from the deadening hand of government coercion. Obamacare is the most far-reaching intrusion on that freedom that has come before the nation in our lifetime because it uh, reaches every American in the most intimate aspects of our lives, uh, in the decisions we make about our health care, turning those decisions over effectively to a vast sea of faceless bureaucrats in Washington, in our states and in our local communities, bureaucrats who, even as we meet here today, are busy uh, making out the regulations that will determine whether we will or will not get the care that we and our families may want and need in the future. That's why so many constitutional challenges have been brought against this scheme which was passed not with the wide support of the American people, 
but by a closely divided partisan Congress, resorting to the infamous Cornhusker kickback, the Louisiana Purchase, and other such shenanigans, and in the face of overwhelming public opposition that has only grown in the meantime, as evidenced by the elections last November, the only poll that ultimately matters in our system of government. And as I turn then <clears throat> to that system of government and to the document through which it was authorized, the Constitution, it's no accident that uh, we've heard so much about the Constitution over the past few years, because those years, uh, uh, those years have seen a massive growth of government at all levels, and nothing except perhaps the financial bailouts has symbolized that growth more clearly than this scheme that has come to be called Obamacare, because if completed, it will take over more than one-sixth of our economy. How is that possible? Americans are increasingly asking, under a constitution that was designed for limited government. The Constitution's principal author, after all, James Madison, wrote in Federalist 45 that the powers of the new government would be few and defined. How can a monstrous scheme like Obamacare arise legitimately under such a constitution? Well, the answer, of course, is that it can't, but it has. And so the troubling question is, how has that happened? And the answer is that it's because we no longer live under the Constitution, but rather under something called modern constitutional law, not to be confused with the Constitution itself. And the theory of that transition plays a crucial role in the devastating opinion that Judge Rich, uh, Roger Vinson handed down nearly two months ago when he found that Obamacare un was unconstitutional in Florida v. HHS, the suit that is brought about, uh, against the scheme by no fewer than 26 states, two private individuals, and the National Federation of Independent Business, which represents small businesses all across the country. I'll turn to that opinion in just a moment, <clears throat> but first I want to develop very briefly the point I just made, that we live today largely under something called constitutional law, not the Constitution. In his opening address for this conference, David Rivkin gave us something of an analytical account of that transition. I'm going to offer more of an historical account. To do that, however, we have to start not with the Constitution, but with the Declaration of Independence, because that's where the American vision of limited government begins. In the Declaration, Jefferson begins by placing us in the natural law tradition, the tradition that stretches all the way back to antiquity, running through the Roman law of Cicero and Seneca, through the 500-year evolution of the common law, through the writings of John Locke's second treatise, Montesquieu's discussion of separation of powers, all of which Jefferson drew upon when he drafted the Declaration. And the vision that emerges from the Declaration is one of limited government to secure our equal rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It could be stated no more simply than that. Each of us has a right to pursue happiness as he works his way through life with government there to secure that right and do a few other things we've authorized it to do. And that's the vision they took with them 11 years later when they drafted a new constitution to create a more perfect order. And we see that right from the preamble, which places us right back in the state of nature tradition that Locke wrote in, that Jefferson wrote the Declaration in, 
and the framers invoked in the preamble when they started, we the people for the purposes listed do ordain and establish this constitution. In other words, all power starts with the people. They give the government certain of those powers, the rest they retain. And then you look at the body of the constitution itself and you will see the strategy that Madison had to at once authorize, institute, empower, and then limit the government that was created through the document once ratified. He began, first of all, by dividing power between the federal and state governments, with most power left with the states, dual sovereignty, as David Rifkin referred to it earlier today. He then separated power between the three branches, each branch defined functionally, provided for a bicameral legislature, an independent judiciary, a unitary executive, provision for periodic elections to fill the offices set forth in the document. But the main restraint on overweening government, and remember, they had just fought a revolution to rid themselves of overweening government, took the form of the doctrine of enumerated powers. And I focus on this because it is at the core of the argument against Obamacare. The doctrine of enumerated powers can be stated no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. You see it in the very first sentence of Article I. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. You look at Article I, Section 8, and you will see the 18 powers that were given to Congress. The power to tax, the power to borrow, the power to regulate interstate and international Congress, and so forth, culminating in the 18th power, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which afforded Congress the means to secure those other ends or powers. And then you look at the last documentary evidence from the founding period, the Tenth Amendment, and you see this doctrine of enumerated powers made express. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And the Ninth Amendment makes that clear in the obverse. Whereas the Tenth speaks of powers, the Ninth speaks of rights. And it reads, the, powers not, uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And so we have both enumerated and unenumerated rights. Remember, the Bill of Rights was an afterthought. It was added two years later. Does this mean we had no rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government from during those first two years? Of course not. The reason we had rights is because the federal government had no power. And where there is, a, is a, there, there is no power, there is, by definition, a right. Indeed, this came up in the very rationale for the Ninth Amendment during the ratification debates, because it became clear during those debates in the states that the Constitution would not be ratified unless a Bill of Rights were added. But there were objections, two main objections. A Bill of Rights would be unnecessary and dangerous, they said. Unnecessary, said Wilson, Hamilton, and others, because why declare that there is freedom of speech, for example, when no power is given with which to violate the freedom of speech? Notice the doctrine of enumerated powers again. 
was the centerpiece of the Constitution. Moreover, they said a Bill of Rights would be dangerous. Why? Because there are, in principle, an infinite number of rights. You can't enumerate them all in a Constitution. But by ordinary principles of legal construction, the failure to do so will be construed as meaning that those that are enumerated are meant to be protected in contradistinction from those that are not. And so that's why the Ninth Amendment was added. And so the vision that emerges from the Constitution is the same one that emerges from the Declaration. It's a world in which each of us is free to pursue happiness by his own values as he works his way through life, living life almost entirely in the private sector with government there to secure those rights and to the few other things that we've authorized it to do under the doctrine of enumerated powers. And we lived under that more or less for 150 years. It wasn't perfect, to be sure. There was the document's oblique recognition of slavery. The framers wrestled mightily with it. They thought it would wither away in time. It didn't. It took a civil war. And the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which for the first time provided federal remedies against state violations of our rights. But still, it was essentially a limited government, including in the last decades and early decades of the 20th century. The great watershed, of course, comes with the progressive era at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, from which such institutions as the one that NERA serves take their cue, the progressive era, whereby there was a fundamental shift in the conception of government. The progressives rejected the vision of the founders and subsequent generations. Their idea was not that government was a necessary evil, rather it was an engine of good and instrument through which to solve all manner of social and economic problems. It was to be, if I may paraphrase the DuPont ad from several years ago, better living through bigger government. And indeed, they were looking to German schools of good government, Bismarck's social security scheme. They were looking to British utilitarianism, which provided that law policy, etc., was to be justified not with reference to whether it secured our rights, but rather with reference to whether it provided the greatest good for the greatest number. Notice the policy rationale as distinct from the principled rationale, not to secure rights, but rather to provide various goods and services. Of course, the only thing that stood athwart this progressive agenda was the Constitution and the willingness of the courts to enforce it, which they did for the most part during the early decades of the 20th century. But of course, things came to a head during the New Deal when the focus of the progressives, now called liberals, shifted from activism, political activism at the state level to political activism at the federal level. And during the first administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt, after the court had found one policy after another to be unconstitutional because beyond the authority of Congress to enact, Roosevelt, after the landslide election of 1936, unveiled his infamous court packing scheme, his threat to pack the court with six new members of his own choosing. There followed the famous switch in time. The court got the message and began rewriting the Constitution, not the way the Civil War generation had done it through the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Article 5 procedures to amend the Constitution, but rather by turning it on its head. And it did it in two main steps. In 1937, it eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers, the very centerpiece of the Constitution. And in 38, it bifurcated the Bill of Rights and gave us a bifurcated theory of judicial review. And with that, the floodgates were opened to the modern regulatory state. 
I'll focus simply on the Commerce Clause because that's what's at issue here. In the Jones and Lachlan case in 1937, the court held effectively that Congress had a power to regulate anything that affected interstate commerce. Well, of course, there's nothing that does not at some level affect interstate commerce, and so now the floodgates were open to the modern regulatory state. The Congress, however, could not deal with all the legislation that was brought before it, and so in 1943, we had the third leg of the modern executive state when the court began to delegate to the executive branch the various legislative functions that properly belonged under Article One, Section 1, Sentence 1 of the Constitution, namely all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. Well, they began delegating with the NBC decision of 1943, thus abrogating the non-delegation doctrine, and we now have the modern executive state that we know and love so well today, where the agencies exercise legislative, executive, and judicial powers all in one branch, contrary to the instructions of Montesquieu, who was consulted more than anyone else, as the framers tell us. And so, we've essentially turned the Constitution on its head, and that's how we got to where we are today. But here's the crucial point that Judge Vinson makes as he outlines this history. That as far as we've gone in permitting the federal government to regulate all manner of activity that might, in the aggregate, have some effect on interstate commerce, never has the Supreme Court taken that last step and sanctioned the government's regulation of inactivity. Never has the high court said that the commerce power reaches mere mental activity, the decision to not act. Yet that precisely is what Judge Gladys Kessler of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia has since done in her decision a month ago in another Obamacare challenge, Meade v. Holder, when she held that Congress, under its commerce power, can regulate the mental activity her words, of deciding not to do something like buy health insurance, all without a shred of Supreme Court precedent to guide her, much less constitutional authority, which she admits. And that is how, step by step, we've abandoned our Constitution in favor of modern constitutional law, crafted by judges often under the political pressures of the day. Well, Judge Vinson and before him Judge Henry Hudson of the Eastern District of Virginia have stood their ground and they're to be commended for it. They both said in their separate ways that their job is to apply the law, in this case the law of the Constitution. And, that, and as that law has been mangled uh, over the years, as far as it has been stretched, it has never been stretched this far to enable Congress, under its power to regulate interstate commerce, to compel individuals to buy a product from a private vendor. As Lopez and Morrison, two cases decided in 1995 and 2000, made clear there are limits on the scope of the commerce power. Nor will the Necessary and Proper Clause help, because that clause is parasitic upon Congress's other powers, 
it affords Congress the means to carry into execution those other powers or ends. It doesn't afford Congress additional ends. Moreover, it affords only those means that are necessary and proper. And that was a point Judge Vincent drove home repeatedly. A reading of the Commerce Clause, in conjunction with the Necessary and Proper Clause, that renders Congress's power effectively limitless cannot be proper, he said, because it vitiates the very structure and purpose of the Constitution to limit the government that was brought into being through it. And so I return to where I began. This case is about liberty. It is only incidentally about health care and health insurance because Obamacare's individual mandate extinguishes the last break on limited government the simple right to be left alone to do nothing, it must fail, failing which limited constitutional government itself will be extinguished. Thank you. Um, thank you, Roger, uh, for that uh, really quite um, uh, detailed historical overview. And, and as Roger makes the point, Nira, uh, we had a Supreme Court uh, that really beginning in 1937, 42, really for 50 years, uh, everyone pretty much assumed that Congress could pass almost any legislation, that everything affected commerce. And then, as Roger uh, mentioned, came the 1995 decision in the Lopez case where the court, in a 5-4 vote, struck down a law that prohibited guns near school zones, saying it's got to be more economic activity uh, than that, and then the Morrison case in 2000. Um, but you argue, and the government argues, that this case obviously is uh, highly significant to commerce. It's not guns in a school zone. This uh, decisions on health care taken together affect the economy. Everyone will have to, at some point, uh, have health insurance. So do you see uh, this uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, I mean, let's, I, I kind of want to look forward here, um, because this is a case of first impression. Do you see this Supreme Court seeing uh, this as economic activity, <coughs> the individual mandate, uh, as kind of this seamless uh, look of, of congressional power? Or do you think, like Roger does, uh, uh, that, that this is, in fact, um, uh, not the way the court's going to look at it? I assume, Roger, you, well, we'll ask you that later, what you think this court will do. Well, I mean, First, in terms of the Supreme Court, I do think that there are sort of a mix of conservative elements, and there's a there's um, there's some conflicts within conservative thought uh, uh, in terms of how the Supreme Court will rule. I don't know uh, how the court will rule. I always find it fascinating that people discuss in detail how they think the court will rule. Kind of like everyone who said Pitt was going to win the NCAA tournament, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, uh, it's, it's, I find it easier to call elections than it is to call um, Supreme Court. And I actually like to believe that they are people who transcend their political uh, constraints, though sometimes they challenge me in my theory. But, um, but I would say that, you know, there's, there's two strains. There's a very uh, a wing that has a sense of, um, you know, a sort of limited... Uh, government kind of perspective to the court, and then there's um, those that have shown uh, a degree of deference to executive and congressional action, and I think that those 
uh, issues are a little bit in conflict in this case, and we'll <coughs> see how the court rules. And I'm, I, I don't presume to judge how they will rule. There's obviously language and rage, et cetera, that points to one side. And if people were perfectly consistent um, with that language that shows a kind of congressional deference in these kinds of situations, then I would say we'd probably be in free and clear. Obviously, Lopez and other more recent decisions um, make a distinction uh, about using the Commerce Clause for, uh, for only economic activity. Obviously, we. Um, I believe, and, and the Obama administration is arguing that an area which touches uh, such a tremendous amount of, of economic activity um, is, uh, is economic. Um, so I think that's a conflict. I would like to just take on a few, um, or just address a few things that, that Roger referenced. And I would say that I, I, I deeply respect um, the, 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 the historical um, view he has of the Constitution and the perspectives of, of the Constitution when, um, uh, but I would say that this, this argument around um, the 1930s Lochner Court, uh, what I found very um, sort of interesting about this perspective on, on the uh, exceedingly limited role the government has and how an adherence to originalism um, would find uh, that much of the modern economic state would be, and regulations thereof, of the modern economic state would be unconstitutional. I would say that we have now lived with, um, you know, in my reckoning, about 30 to 40 years of a conservative Supreme Court. We've had, uh, we've had nominees who were named from um, the conservative, uh, from conservative, conservative presidents. Um, one can argue that some of them may not adhere to Rogers' vision, but they are conservatives. And, this con and this, these courts for decades have chosen not to upend uh, the Lochner era decision making. Uh, and, and many of them adhere to a sense of originalism. And so I think that, that that vision of the Constitution, Roger's vision of the Constitution, is one that is deeply, uh, deeply in contest and has been in contest as, as for uh, hundreds of years. It is like the argument about America that is at the heart of this. Now, he can, he can argue that progressives and I do come from the center, I do work for the Center for American Progress, are, have a, have a extra constitutional vision of the, uh, of, of the system of laws and of constitutional decision making that our view that we have a living constitution that should to some degree acknowledge uh, the realities of the world we live in today and that the reason why the constitution uh, speaks uh, in broad, in broader um, language and is not as prescriptive as statute is because our founders recognized that they could not determine uh, what America would be 200, 250, 300 years from the times they lived in. And so that those who argue for a broader constitutional perspective, obviously limited by the text and, uh, and uh, having, t having uh, some uh, strong adherence to the text, but still breathing 
uh, to the degree that we recognize the facts on the the the, the way people live um, is not is not a is not a vision that is not respectful of liberty. We define liberty. Uh, uh, just we may have a different vision of what that liberty means. For example, I myself personally believe that it is not uh, respectful of someone's liberty interests that uh, we argue that we live in a world where people um, can, a person who has cancer, stricken by cancer, no, nothing, they did nothing to do, had nothing to do with them, they're just unlucky. They get stricken by cancer. They can never get insurance again. I believe it is not in that person's liberty interest to ensure <coughs> they are just a victim or a whim of the market. And that when we live together in a country, we can make decisions that as a country, that is not right. And it is in the liberty interests of each and every American to say that we can band together and say that it's wrong for insurance companies to do that. And therefore, uh, I believe it is, you know, it is, it is, in my view, that the Affordable Care Act and the protections within it and protections for pre-existing conditions are actually absolutely in the liberty interests of the American people. And what I find disconcerting about the conservative argument around this, and not all conservatives, there are many conservatives who have had adhered to Rogers' vision of the Constitution, which is one strain. But there are others who have argued in other contexts against judicial activism, against the uh, uh, judges, unelected judges, making decisions about uh, against uh, those who are elected. And, uh, and I find it I find it surprising that those, uh, that group of conservatives, which I again say Roger is not amongst those conservatives, he's held his views consistently, but there are a strain of conservatives who have argued for, ju for judicial deference towards Congress in many arenas and have chosen that in this case, that deference should go out the window. And I J think that Jan, is unfortunate. Jan, could I respond to at least me, some of uh, well, yeah, Amira's second speech? Well, just a minute, because you, she, she gets to, to respond because you did kind of lay out a, a view of the Constitution that she obviously doesn't share. But let me first, before okay. you do, for those of you who don't really follow uh, the intricacies of the Supreme Court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence, uh, just to give you, so you've got something to hold on to while we're talking about this. Um, the Supreme Court, as you know, has undergone tremendous change since 2005. Um, when it was headed by William Rehnquist, one of his great... Um, uh, uh, passions, really, was scaling back congressional power. He thought it had gone too far. Rehnquist really cared about this, federal power vis-a-vis -vis the states. So that's when we had that Lopez decision in 1995 that blew the lid off the place. I mean, people couldn't believe it. You know, for 50 years, we thought Congress could do anything. And then on comes, you know, Lopez uh, and, and just changes everything. The chessboard pieces get completely rearranged. That was the Rehnquist court with William Rehnquist leading that court and Sandra Day O'Connor at his side. She also cared deeply. Remember, she's a former state legislator. She cared deeply about those issues, too. We have an entirely, and who's to say how they would rule on this if they were there? My guess is they would strike this, I mean, they would strike this down. I, I feel almost confident. But um, we have an entirely new Supreme Court now. We don't know if John Roberts cares about congressional 
power the Commerce Clause like the Chief Justice, his predecessor, did. We don't know how Justice Alito will rule. We don't know how uh, Justice Kennedy, the other kind of now, he's kind of the swing vote, will rule. We don't know how Justice Scalia will rule. Now, you would think, when you think originalism, you think Antonin Scalia, right? As near as, as was talking about this. But in the medical marijuana case, and Roger, I want you to respond to this too, uh, Justice Scalia allowed federal power and was highly criticized uh, by conservatives for abandoning originalism. And, and conservatives said the only true originalist on the court is Clarence Thomas, um, who would not have allowed the federal power. So this is not, I think, you know, Mr. Rivkin can say he's optimistic, he thinks the court's going to strike this down, um, and maybe you're optimistic that they're going to uphold it. I would, I mean, I think that this is just one of those that we have no idea what the Supreme Court is going to do. And, um, and they may well not know, but I don't know. I mean, do, I know you want to respond to Nira, um, but I also want to get your thoughts on whether or not you see any clues, what you make of Justice Scalia's concurring opinion in the race case. Does that bind him? Uh, you know, he goes into necessary proper clause, of course, analysis in that decision. But, and Justice Scalia, uh, Kennedy was also in the majority in the race case, the medical marijuana case. So do you see any clues on how this court may approach these issues and eventually come out uh, no, Please answer that. I, I, I know you've got to respond to no, Nira, No, too, I, I don't see any clues because since uh, Rage, the Roberts Court has not had any enumerated powers case that is on all fours with Lopez or Morrison. And so we haven't had any true uh, case that will uh, give us an, an insight into that. The closest perhaps we could come is the, um, is the, the big um, campaign finance case um, which, uh, in which the, the conservatives on the court held their own. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it now. The, uh, uh, Citizens United. United, of course, yes. Uh, and and uh, there, uh, there, of course, they, um, they did stand their ground, even against the popular wave that came from, from Congress and from McCain-Feingold and their ilk. Uh, but to return, I'll just respond to two of the points that... Um, uh, that Nira made in her rejoinder. Uh, first of all, she said that we've lived with 30 or 40 years of uh, conservative Supreme Court, and they haven't done much to upset the what she called the Lochner-era court. Well, <clears throat> that uh, is because the jurisprudence of the right has evolved over the last 40 years. It was initially a reaction by people like Robert Bork and Anton Scalia to the judicial activism of the Warren and Berger courts of the late 50s, the 60s, and 70s. But that reaction was only tepid. It went after the rights activism that the, um, that the conservatives, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, saw on the part of the Warren and the Berger courts. It did not go back to the first principles of the matter, namely the doctrine of enumerated powers, which had been lost in 37. And so when I moved from the Justice Department to the Cato Institute in 1988, one of my main goals was to establish the Center for Constitutional Studies to address this problem. In fact, even before that, in a conference that Cato held in 1984 uh, on economic liberties in the judiciary, which I organized even though I was at the time serving in the Reagan administration and spoke at as well, uh, we had a spirited debate between the two camps, the libertarian or classical liberal camp, which obviously I come from, 
uh, which was represented by Richard Epstein, in a spirited debate with then-Judge Antonin Scalia on oh, the D.C. Circuit <laughs> on economic liberties. That must have been a classic. That was indeed, and a <laughs> book came out afterward on that, and it was a classic battle between the two sides. But that's an issue that I myself had been working on, along with Bernie Segan, as, uh, as early as the um, mid to late 70s, when I was uh, doing my doctorate at the University of Chicago. And so there has been this struggle all along. And since uh, the early 90s, when we here at Cato especially, but others joined us along the way, started promoting the revival of the doctrine of enumerated powers, not simply the attack on liberal judicial activism, we have seen a shift on the jurisprudence of the right. And there are many more people today who are calling for this fundamental return to first principles and to the idea of reviving the doctrine of enumerated powers on one hand and securing rights both enumerated and unenumerated on the other. So this is why you haven't seen the changes yet in the Supreme Court except for outliers like Lopez and Morrison, but I predict that we will see more of this. Justice Thomas, as Jan said, is the closest thing we've got to that, and you, to see that, all you need to do is read his concurrence in the Lopez decision. Now, the second point that uh, Nira made, which I want to address, is a point that's more relevant to our discussion today, and indeed she states it, and she and her colleagues, in their response to Judge Vincent's decision, when she speaks of, and I quote, one of the insurance industry's most abusive practices, denying coverage to patients with pre-existing conditions. Abusive? That is simply an exercise of the insurance principle. You don't insure known risks. You can't wait till your house catches on fire and then go out and buy an insurance policy. The very idea of insurance is to protect against unknown, unforeseen risks, not risks that are manifest. And so the reason that a company doesn't insure people with pre-existing conditions, or if they do, charges them a premium for doing so, is because they are a greater risk than those who don't have those pre-existing conditions. And so we are not talking here about any abuse at all, unless you believe that people have a right to insurance at a rate that they think is appropriate for them, as opposed to a rate that the actuarial tables will require the insurance company to uh, charge in order to stay in business. And so the idea that you can order a company to insure at standard rates people with pre-existing conditions simply undermines the insurance principle. I dare say Nero wouldn't say that you should be able to go out and buy an insurance policy on your home once it catches fire. Yet mutatis mutandis, it's the same exact principle here. You can't go out and buy an insurance policy once you've got a pre-existing condition at the standard rate. This simply undermines the insurance principle. Now, she will say, but that's precisely why we must have the individual mandate. Well, that gets us back to a constitutional issue. We're no longer talking policy anymore. We're talking the constitutional issue. And there I put forth the arguments why that will not wash, not at least as long as we have a constitution for limited government that prohibits government from ordering people to buy products from private vendors.
right, Nira? So just just briefly, I guess uh, what I am arguing is that it is uh, it is proper for um, the federal government to say because so many people have demanded it, and it is obviously something that is has again has had bipartisan support um, that that it is uh, that people who um, have pre-existing conditions should be able to get insurance, not at a rate set by the government, not by a, t- not by a percentage um, set. Not, not, we, we aren't talking about, for example, President Nixon's wage and hours laws. We are actually just saying that they should be um, they should not be substantially priced out of the market, and that is the basis of modified community rating, which has existed in the states. So what that means is that insurance rates go higher so they can take into account um, the base, the fact that they have a pool that conditions that has people with pre-existing <coughs> conditions in it, but that we also believe that in a system where not everyone has health care provided by the government, for example, we don't have a single-payer system, um, in a system where we have private insurance, uh, that we allow, that we ensure that those people are not subject to the vagaries and whims of the market and are not allowed, not basically allowed to not have health insurance, but that they have health insurance. That is the distinction that I'm, I'm making. I'm not saying that we should regulate the price of those things. I'm just saying, saying that it is uh, a legitimate act of the government to ensure that those regulations are permitted. All right. Um, obviously, uh, stark uh, competing views of the Constitution, uh, which means stark views of, of the uh, future of this law. Um, we're going to open this up to questions from the audience, but bef- and while they're coming with the microphone, let me just get your brief response on this. Um, a woman in the audience, and I don't know if she's still here, uh, in the first panel asked the question, you know, how could we have this law, uh, this, this massive law, uh, how could Congress, basically how could Congress have passed this and the president have signed it if it's unconstitutional? <laughs> Uh, you know, didn't they think about these things? I mean, which is, you know, obviously um, uh, uh, not a not a bad point. Um, and then another person on the panel said, "Partisan laws, uh, generally, which this was, of course, make bad policy." Uh, so, I guess my question to both of you, while we're uh, getting the microphones for the audience, is: Here we have a law, you know, that, that now it seems is this <coughs> was it not? Um, headed to a Supreme Court that's closely divided five to four with one justice off in the middle key swing vote. What would that mean, I think, for the Supreme Court, for political discourse, if the future of health care came down to, let's say, Justice Kennedy, one vote, this entire legislation comes down to one justice on the Supreme Court. And anyway, I'm going to sit down and we'll take questions from the audience now. Do you, do you want me to? I mean, so uh, I, I think the, well, just on the, uh, uh, just on the issue of this, which I think that the, the, what's unfortunate so far is that um, the courts have basically split on partisan lines. And I think that's kind of an unfortunate uh, thing for those who care about um, seeing the courts as apolitical actors. We have uh, judges who've been named by Republicans basically finding against the law, and we have judges named by Democrats finding on behalf of the law. Um, and one could argue that, some have argued that these issues really don't even have standing at this point. So in some sense, 
people uh, from one vantage point, people are kind of reaching to make that decision. But um, I think the, uh, I would say one thing just to respond to something Roger said earlier, which is um, what's at stake in the, in the decision is uh, the individual mandate. There are nine titles to this law. Eight of them do not touch on the individual mandate. I obviously believe the individual mandate is constitutional. But in terms of uh, if one were to have conservative principles of severability, um, you could find the law cons you could find the individual mandate unconstitutional and still hold that most of the law will uh, stand. And in addition to that, um, while Roger views believes the whole law will fall apart, and I I think it will be I think it will be undermined by the lack of an individual mandate. Um, even experts, you know, even strong proponents of the individual mandate believe that will, if you get rid of the mandate by itself, you'll lose coverage for people, uh, some estimate as high as 10 million, but you will still have a bill that covers 20 to 25 million Americans at the same cost. Roger, what, five, just play out what a 5-4 decision would, would mean with the conservatives in majority, Justice Kennedy joining the conservatives. Well, it may, very, it may very well come down to one vote, but didn't the vote in Congress do that also? And indeed, it was passed by one party as against the other. And we have since had a referendum, and the referendum was overwhelming. And so um, if that's what it comes to, that's what it comes to. Right. But... Um, I don't think we have heard the end of this uh, right. because this is, after all, let's be candid. There were a number of people who, Sub Rosa, did say, this is nothing more than a Trojan horse, a stalking horse for single payer because there is no way the insurance companies are going to be able to operate under this system without becoming cartelized. And that's exactly the history of the progressive movement. All these fine-sounding laws that were passed during the progressive era ultimately resulted in cartelizing whole industries. Read Richard Epstein's How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, which we published in 2006, and you will see the sordid history of that. This is just one more example of it. It will, if this survives, come to pass, and eventually we will have either a cartelized insurance industry, which is nothing more than state capitalism, or we will have single payer like the Europeans. And when that happens, you will not have the choices that you have today. I will give you just one example. We have miracle drugs available in this country because we have a relatively free market relative to the rest of the world in research and development. It takes about 15 years and some billion dollars to bring to market every new miracle drug. And most of medicine today is pharmacology. Those drugs are not available in Europe because the countries there will not pay the price that is necessary to acquire those drugs. So whereas we have third generation drugs, they are still operating under second generation drugs. That's just one example of the kind of thing that lies ahead if this bill survives. All right. Let's thank you, Roger. Thank you, Nira. Let's go to our you had your hand up first, Ma'am. 
you. It's a pretty simple question. Uh, will members or will members of Congress have the right to exclude themselves from the exchanges and keep their own health coverage plan for which the American taxpayer already pays 70 percent of their health care? So uh, as, as was passed in the bill, members of Congress are in the exchanges. They are actually in the exchanges. There's a question about their staff committees. But the members of Congress themselves are actually uh, – uh, are actually in the exchanges themselves. There's, uh, and that, that was part of the bill that passed, ultimately. So the question is whether, and there is some question about some of their staffs, but they themselves are actually in the exchanges, which I'm happy to go and find the piece of the, the bill itself. So unless something changes, unless they pass an amendment or something to do, to do that, then, then that would be a problem. The one thing I would just, just to respond very briefly to Roger's remarks about um, socialism, uh, I would say the irony of this, this whole debate is that it is around uh, purely private insurance and regulations around purely private insurance. There are obviously many who supported a public option. The public option did not pass with, in a democratic Congress. So I myself think it might be hard to get to socialism considering an offer of a public option was not was not entertained by Democrats. But, and ironically enough, if we had a system which offered, which demanded that everyone have a single payer, like Medicare for all, the constitutional arguments around it would evaporate. That is just an irony that we deal with um, because we are obviously champion. We are obviously championed the public option, the the private insurance uh, system that was developed. But um, it is, it remains true nonetheless. Uh, Nira, uh, socialism is merely a label that covers a variety of arrangements, including highly regulated industries such as being proposed under Obamacare. When you transfer rights from one party to another, you socialize the liberties that are at issue. You don't have to take over whole companies and put them under government control to have socialism. Socialism has many degrees, and this is one variation of the term. It's, it's just I'm happy to note that we live in a socialist society now, and I just didn't recognize that when I, you know, in my everyday discourse. Well, I have, for some reason, recognized it. Sir, Hello, my name's Terrence Byrne. I'm unaffiliated. I heard Ms. Tandon assert and Ms. Crawford repeat at least twice that healthcare is different from all other products and that this gives it a different, a unique standing, a unique standing before the courts because health insurance, health insurance is a product that everyone, every single American will sooner or later need. If the constitutionality of the mandate in the affordable health care law hangs on this principle, it will indeed fail. Because I can easily name several people off the top of my head who have no need and will never need health insurance. Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Oprah Winfrey. These people don't need insurance. They can pay for their own care. 
Excuse so me, just before you go, I, uh, just so there's not any uh, mistake uh, or impression here, I was characterizing what the government's argument has been in these cases for why healthcare is different. That is not uh, what I said my view necessarily was, Nira. Yeah, so I mean, actually, that's one of the reasons why I make, made a different argument than what, uh, than, than what the government has argued, although... <laughs> um, so yeah, the cocktail hour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. We have to end soon. Um, so let me just just let me state me that very quickly. Uh, we the, the one of the differences between healthcare and other arenas is is not ju not simply let me say that you will have health and someone needs health care uh, or health insurance at any given time. What is different is that we have a situation in which um, the government has mandated that. Uh, people have an absolute right to care by private actors. Um, and once, once the government decided to do that, they decided that meant that those people, those people's costs are shifted onto other people. And that is one of the challenges that we live in in the healthcare system, which is unless you have a system that brings everybody into health insurance, you don't, you, you always deal with that cost shifting. I'm, and I'm happy to... I think Roger wanted to say something on that. Oh, sure, well, sorry. I think the gentleman is absolutely right. There are lots of people uh, that not necessarily of the um, uh, financial resources of um, <clears throat> Bill Gates or um, Warren Buffett who um, would prefer to buy, uh, say, a very high deductible insurance policy, you know, ten, twenty thousand uh, $20,000 deductible and then pay f for their regular medical expenses uh, out of their pocket because the administrative costs of first-dollar coverage are horrendous. And isn't that, Roger, what the, I mean, obviously some of the plaintiffs, certainly the ones here in the D.C. case, that's what they are, a group of them are arguing that. Uh, absolutely. That they should just want to buy, pay for it. Absolutely. Time. And, uh, I mean, because let's be honest, what we've got today is not so much health insurance. It's prepaid medical care is what it is. And th this is nothing like what insurance is designed to be. But you can't buy those high deductible policies under Obamacare as it will play out. And the reason is, is because they will cost a lot less. And therefore, you will not have the money contributed to the pool that will be necessary to pay the costs of all those people who are going to be able to be insured with pre-existing conditions, who don't take care of their health, don't exercise, don't eat right, uh, smoke, and do all the other uh, unhealthy things that lead them to be drains upon the public fisc. All right, who's next? Clive. <laughs> oh, okay, we still have time. Thanks. Uh, Clive Crook from the Financial Times. Uh, I wonder if Neera Tandon could uh, take this question. Um, during a confirmation hearing, Alana Kagan was asked whether a law that required people to eat broccoli and go to the gym twice a week would be constitutional. Uh, she said that would be a dumb law, as though one could not imagine Congress ever passing a dumb law. But she wouldn't, she wouldn't be drawn on whether it was constitutional. I wonder if you would be willing to be drawn. Would such a law be constitutional? And then a corresponding question to uh, Roger. Is Medicare constitutional? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> so uh, I, I hope people use uh, uh, Elena's views of the law more than mine. I, I, my, my view of that is that there are strong distinctions between 
uh, the requirement that people purchase broccoli and the requirement that people uh, the, in the health insurance system are reg are regulated. So I actually think it's totally fine to say it would be wrong to require people to have health insurance to purchase broccoli, but not wrong to say That's that this. Unconstitutional, wrong, unconstitutional. I think there are perfectly good distinctions, obviously. My own view of it is that people who um, want to attack the law should actually be attacking EMTALA. They should actually have it, have, go after and say that it's wrong for the federal government to require people, for private actor, require that private actors take care of people when they're sick. But I think this is a political discussion, and for the president's, it's it's... Maybe Roger would make that case, but I don't believe 26 uh, Republican attorneys generals would make that case because they know the public would find it repulsive to argue it. So I actually believe that if we find Mtala constitutional, this is a very different case. And so I would I would applaud those who would actually go and attack Mtala and argue to the American people that the federal government can't require private insurers to take care of the sickest at their doorsteps. Well, then you can begin by applauding me right now. No, I, I applaud Roger. Because I, I, I made that point already, Roger, okay. that you would be perfectly And you can because uh, I do believe that there is no right to health care any more than there is a right to housing, food, clothing, etc., except from children, from their parents, and what have you. Because if there were a right to goods and services, there would be a correlative obligation to provide those, and that would be intrusion upon the freedom to plan and live your own life. The fundamental freedom is the freedom to be left alone. If you want to get rights to goods and services, you do that through contract, not between strangers forced to come to the aid of others. I'm talking about the Good Samaritan principle, which is the welfare state writ small. The Good Samaritan, if you remember your Bible, was a case in which you came to the aid of someone in need because it was the right thing to do. It was voluntary. It was not because you were forced to do it. There is no virtue in forced charity. And so, to get back to the general point, if this law were eliminated, people would then have every right to join together to provide for uh, the insurance or care of those who are indigent and could not provide for themselves. The Americans are a very generous people, and they would do so, but they hate forced charity. That's the first point I would make. The second point I would make in response to the question yes, is whether Medicaid or Medicare are unconstitutional. Of course they are. You, did you <laughs> expect me to say anything except that? In fact, oh, good, you, you have now heard me say it. But having said that, once you've created this network of dependencies, people have paid into the social security system all their lives and now they are retired, you cannot then take it out from under them at this point. That's why we have to gradually work our way out of this various cluster of socialized arrangements that we have created. And we're going to have to do it over a period of time. With Social Security, for example, the way out is to allow younger people to have private accounts that are portable, unconnected with their jobs, that they can take with them. And this is the way it's done in many countries around the 
uh, world. Our own Jose P Pinera, a distinguished fellow here at Cato, was the one who instituted, instituted the Chilean plan, which is far more efficient than our own social security system, which of course is a Ponzi scheme that is going broke. Right. And so the, the answer to your question very simply is that, yes, these are unconstitutional, but just as in the fall, after the fall of the wall in Eastern Europe, getting into socialism is very easy. Getting out of it is a slow, arduous process. All right, so we got a yes. You got two yeses. Yeah, two yeses. That's yes. All right, I think we have time for one more question. And uh, you you had your hand up as, 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 from the beginning, so. Changes yeah. as the conversation goes on. <laughs> but I would like to know whether, um, well, I guess from Mr. Pylon, whether a tax in lieu of a mandate uh, would be constitutional, not desirable, but constitutional. And, and perhaps from Ms. Tandon, whether uh, other schemes for achieving the same result of avoiding uh, cost shifting. Uh, were considered during during the mm -hmm. legislative process, perhaps uh, a tax, uh, as much of a uh, bugaboo as the word has been uh, the last couple of years. You're eating um, into your answer time. We have okay. three minutes. And or whether a, uh, a let me bleed in the street card, which I think Mr. Pylon would prefer. Right. <laughs> All right, so we have three minutes, Roger, a minute and a half. So Can you answer it, that? Yes, I'll make okay. it uh, very quick. Um, first of all, every court that has considered the tax angle of Obamacare has found it to be um, not a tax. It's a regulatory penalty. And so that issue, it seems to me, is not going to go anywhere. Uh, he had a different question, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, no, Would you that, asked me whether a tax. It yeah. was a tax. Uh, whether you could tax. Sure. If, in other words, if you had something like a single payer under the Commerce Clause and you just taxed for the purpose of providing health insurance, is what you're saying? It doesn't have to be a single payer. It could be, it could be a, subsidy, a, a subsidy situation. It could take the first $500 from, yeah. from your Social Security uh, 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 taxes. Is there yeah. anything under, that Congress <clears throat> could come up under, with? Under current law, under current readings of the Constitution, that would be constitutional in my judgment. It would be. But the problem is with current readings of the Constitution, with the post-37 post readings. We can have that conversation later. Right. All right, Nira. Uh, so I think, yes, there were absolutely uh, uh, other ways to, to do this. And one of, you know, as you know, many of, many, I, I made I worked in the primary, and uh, in the presidential cycle, the president had not supported an individual mandate. And uh, the reason why he moved to support an individual mandate, as he has himself articulated, it was because it was the most effective way, most cost-effective way to bring in more people uh, at the sort of cheapest price in some sense. And so... Um, and, you know, originally, for a long time, we had bipartisan support for the issue, and lots of Republicans, well, as you'll notice, a lot of the letters that went to the president from the Republican leadership, none of them mentioned this issue. So it wasn't an issue that any, you know, any of the Republican leaders had mentioned for a very long time. And so um, that was, an, there was just strong support in the Congress for it. Um, and so uh, I would say there, we did look at things like automatic enrollment, um, other arenas where uh, people could opt out of having health insurance. And uh, just quickly, the problems with those, although, you know, they could be feasible options in the future, the problems with those is that you basically uh, 
you basically pay the same amount of money, if not more amount of money, um, from the federal government's perspective, and you just cover fewer people. So it was less cost-effective um, than having an individual mandate. And, I've, and, and I should just make this point really clear about the individual mandate. You know, 86% of Americans have health insurance today, so the individual mandate does not touch uh, those people who already have coverage, and they're not required to really do anything as part of the individual mandate. So, um, but, you know, other options were looked at, and those options may look be looked at again in the future. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you. Uh, this concludes this uh, afternoon of, of discussion. Thank you for Roger and Neera. We're going to have a reception. There will be a reception afterward if you want to continue this discussion. Uh, but thank you very much.